Welcome to those who are watching online this morning. Today is one of those Sundays where, uh, I, I don't know if I can speak for all pastors, kind of we have a love-hate relationship with. It's a standalone Sunday. So, you know, we typically plan out series at Terra, whether we're walking through books of the Bible or mini-series like we have been with prayer and the Holy Spirit and Sabbath earlier this year. But then every once in a while we'll have a Sunday where it's just free for all, whatever you want to preach on. And uh, it's sometimes just easier to be preaching through a book of the Bible where you know exactly where you're going to be the next week. Um, uh, but today is one of those standalone uh, Sundays where I, I prayerfully tried to just consider what is it that, the, that you would have me uh, preach on, Lord? And actually, this one wasn't too difficult for me because um, for some time now, I've, I've wanted the opportunity to unpack something else that I uh, was challenged with on my sabbatical. So basically, a year ago today, I returned from my sabbatical. I had four months after 10 years of being at Terra last year to just get away and find re- refreshment and restoration with my family and with the Lord. And uh, there are many themes during that time the Lord impressed upon me. It's, that, that season was so fruitful, um, and I think will continue to be as I unpack these in my life and, uh, and even in the opportunities uh, of my ministry, such as today. Uh, but one of those themes I want to share with you today, and that is that in all we do, we're either living from a, a position of being driven or living from a position of being called. And those are two terms that may not mean much or anything to you at the moment. I'll unpack those as we go today. But basically, it has to do with the underlying motivations uh, that we live out of in our day-to-day life as people in general and as Christ followers in particular. And it will result, whatever those motivations are, they're going to result in either being on the endless hamster wheel of life trying to keep up in comparison with those people around us or with our own subjective idea of what success and value and worthiness looks like, which inevitably will lead to burnout for you or for me, and typically the fallout of hurting people around us when those are our motivations, or joy and contentment, which is immune to things like whether we are successful or we fail, whether we are popular or unpopular, Two very, very different outcomes based upon two very, very different underlying motivations in our life. And I, I want the latter. I want to live from a place of joy and contentment despite my circumstances, whether people approve or don't, whether I live up to my own expectations for myself or not. And that we would call the called life. And I'll unpack that as we go today. I want to say up front, just to give credit where credit's due, Um, there was a book that was particularly influential from which I'll be drawing a lot today, and that was called Ordering Your Private World by uh, a pastor and an author named Gordon MacDonald, who you may or may not have heard of. Good book, um, though I will say I probably only read about half of it. It's one of those books that there's so much richness to um, that I could just meditate even in portions of it and get a lot out of it. So I never even finished it. But this idea of the driven person versus the called person was a significant theme early on in that book. And God was really speaking to me through that. So I want to share with you from the overflow a little bit today. But before we do, would you just join me in in prayer for a moment? Father, I thank you. I just thank you that we get to be together today, this morning. It's maybe very much a part of our rhythms, um, our liturgy as... uh, as people who are used to coming to church, as Christians, to gather on a Sunday morning. And it's so easy for us and for myself to take that for granted. But it's a gift from you. It's a gift. Before it's an obligation from us, it's a gift from you that we have community and we have brothers and sisters in Christ and we have a place where we get to worship you collectively. We get to hear from you through your word. And I just pray that that would all register and weigh on us appropriately this morning. What an amazing opportunity we get to hear from you, commune with you and each other. We, we need your Spirit's help in doing that. The gift whom you gave the church and you give individuals as they profess Jesus as Savior and Lord to lead us and to guide us and to illuminate our hearts and minds and understanding what the truth is in a world where there are so many lies swirling around us. We need your help, Holy Spirit, to guide us into the truth this morning, to bring conviction where that's needed to bring comfort and encouragement where that is needed and everything in between. Now let it be your words, Father, that resonate and go forth and um, 
producing a harvest of righteousness, sanctification, growth in our walks with Jesus, in our love for you, and in our understanding of your love for us this morning. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'll get right into it. Um, I want to unpack for you first what it, what it could mean and what it looks like to be a driven person. Um, so I'm, here's a definition for a driven person. A driven person is a person who has a deep underlying motivation to need to succeed or to need the approval of others in order to be secure in their sense of worth, no matter the cost. Right? A lot of times in the wake of a driven person, there can be the collateral damage of people who are hurt around us because we're so desperate to be successful or approved. And these are the underlying motivations that exist in, in a driven person. I will say that a driven person often, a, a deeply driven person, will do good things. Uh, entrepreneurial types often are driven to start new businesses and companies and organizations and churches uh, driven people can be very bright and popular and small C charismatic people, uh, movers and shakers, hard workers. They get a lot done. And hear me, none of that is necessarily wrong. All of those things can be characteristic of what we'll talk about when we talk about a called person in a little bit too. The difference at the end of the day is in what is the underlying motivation between somebody who's driven and somebody who is called. Driven people are often motivated, as I talked about a moment ago, by this need for success or for popularity or for productivity, and you become a slave to those masters, and you can only ever fall short of them. I don't think if I queried this group right here that anybody would say that they have ever obtained the productivity levels that they aspire to, the popularity that they would hope for and approval of those around them, and the productivity that they would want for your life, right? Like, if nothing else, we're told in the Bible it's going to be like thorns and thistles from the ground as a result of living in a fallen, broken world. It's just not going to happen. And so truly those things, if those are your underlying motivations, become slave masters that we are slaves to. And so to be driven in why we do what we do will inevitably result in something that's not sustainable for you and often results in the suffering of those around you that you really do care about the most, but sometimes can get in the way of those things. So we're going to do a brief flyby uh, case study of a driven type of a person we see in scripture in King Saul in 1 Samuel 9. And this will be real cursory just because I want to spend the lion's share of our time looking at John the Baptist, who gives us instead a picture of a person who lives called by God and the very different essence of that way of living from a driven person. So King Saul was not always king. He first was just Saul. He was a guy in Israel and in 1 Samuel 9 were introduced to him. And the backstory is that Israel was discontent with not having an earthly king like all the surrounding neighbors did. They had a king. His name was Yahweh, but they weren't satisfied with that. And they wanted to have an earthly representative king. So God, as he sometimes does, gives them what they want, even with the warnings of why it would not ultimately be good for them. And so then they pick and choose who they want to be their first king. And they pick Saul. And in 1 Samuel 9, here's what we're told about Saul. He's wealthy, he's attractive, he has a large physical stature, he's head and shoulders above everyone else, he's an eloquent speaker. Those are the characteristics that we're given. And the one thing I want you to note about all those things is that they're given, not earned. They are natural gifts, the way that God made him from the start, not something that was cultivated in his deep inner life over a long period of time of trusting the Lord through thick and thin. Okay? So... Based upon those external attributes, he's fast-tracked to success. He's anointed as king in Israel, and so he's popular, and he's powerful, and he's influential right from the start without having really earned it, just based upon all those natural attributes. And so once he assumes the throne, we almost immediately see the problems that arise, uh, he becomes very busy in seeing these lands that needed to be conquered and peoples around them that needed to be conquered. 
And slowly but surely, we see he's not caring well for Israel, his own people. Uh, He gradually forsakes his own personal devotion to the Lord. And it kind of all comes to the head in this one scene where I think it's the Philistines that he's about to go up against in battle. And first, what needs to happen is for the prophet Samuel to come and actually offer sacrifices on behalf of Israel uh, for blessing before they go out into battle. And Saul is impatient because Samuel, we're not told why, is delayed for some reason. And so Saul gets impatient. He takes matters into his own hands. He offers the sacrifices. He goes out into the battle and it does not end well because this is kind of the tipping point where God is so displeased with Saul that he comes to him and he tells him, your kingdom will no longer endure and another man is going to assume the throne after you who is a man after my own heart. And this is where we see truly... uh, the, the full dimensions of, uh, of a driven man on display from that point forward because Saul is driven nearly mad with jealousy and rage and anger uh, toward David. He's consumed with holding on to the kingdom and his throne, whatever the cost, and he's focused on eliminating David, this one who'd been a friend to him to comfort him in his times of sorrow and, and distress. Now he's seeking to kill and eliminate And ultimately, Saul's story is one of a tragic end where he goes out into a battle and Israel's defeated and in a cowardice's way out, he falls upon his sword. And this is really a cautionary tale for how the driven man or woman will ultimately end up. And it may not be that dramatic, but that's ultimately the trajectory that any of us who are more driven than called will end up going on as a path of destruction that will ultimately end badly. Now, I want to nuance this a bit by saying, listen, it's not a matter of whether or not you are a driven person or not. All of us in a fallen, broken world, even God's people, are going to face regular temptation to be driven, to have those underlying motivations of a need to define our identity and our purpose by worldly ideas of success and popularity. All of us are going to be fighting those temptations regularly, I want to say daily, and need to be reoriented to the truth, okay? So all of us here, if we are wise and have ears to hear, will recognize this is relevant to me today, even if it doesn't fully describe me as a Christian who is loved by God, who is a son or daughter of the Most High. Saul is your dramatic extreme example, but all of us can fall into this temptation if we're not careful. I want you to listen to some of the symptoms of drivenness here for a moment before we kind of move and shift our attention to what it looks like to live a called life. Driven people are typically are only gratified by accomplishment, all right? The danger is that it's never, it'll never be enough. The list of things I must accomplish must get longer, must be more impressive to continue to satisfy that inward drive and desire. And so you end up being conditioned to only see life uh, as, as a series of results, or else it's a failure. Secondly, driven people have the need uh, for others to see what it is that they've accomplished. All right, it's not enough in the privacy of your own home or in your heart uh, to be doing right, to be obedient. You need that to be seen by others, and the more important the person, the better. Driven people, thirdly, uh, never stop to appreciate the moments um, of achievement to date. They're always on to the next thing. This is, this is sad, right? Like where a person actually is accomplishing great things in life and yet because of that drivenness to need to continue to produce in order to feel worthy, they don't ever even stop to pause and say, man, isn't that amazing? And honestly, the reason is probably because in part there's a, a belief that they accomplished that on their own and so they have to one-up themselves rather than anything that I accomplish is an act of the grace of God that he would give me these abilities, that he would produce this fruit through me. So there's a, a lack of humility in that posture that would cause somebody to need to just move on to the next achievement after achievement without ever stopping to pause and celebrate the small and big things that God has done in their life. Fourthly, driven people gradually minimize the importance of integrity. This is an important one. The end of success or productivity or popularity justifies the means, which often involves slowly but surely compromising integrity and morality. Fifthly, for driven people, the people around them often will become uh, a means to an end, a means 
to productivity, a stepping stone to being seen and being popular in the eyes of of others, or a resource. People will become a resource to be managed versus a person to be cared for, Um, a person who is under the leadership or works for a driven person or boss might say of them, man, he or she is miserable to work with, but boy, they get a lot done. That might be what somebody who works under a driven person would say about them. Uh, Within the last couple of years, one of the values personally, and that I'm trying to instill in our family, um, a realization for is that love is inefficient. Um, This idea that Oftentimes, um, it can be what love requires of us is going to come at a cost to other things that we feel like are important. And so it's easy to justify not loving people because it's going to inhibit these other things from getting done. I've just realized more and more, guys, love is inefficient. If you look at Jesus' life, honestly, with his big goals of like preaching the gospel and reaching the world with this good news, the amount of times he allows himself to be interrupted um, in ways that come at a personal cost to himself is, is incredible. That's what we need to be able to see, uh, that truly love is inefficient, okay? And that's the opposite of a driven person who's all about efficiency and sees people around them potentially as a means to an end. Sixth, uh, driven people tend to be highly competitive. Every situation is a win or lose type situation. Seventh, driven people are often prone to explosive anger, especially when those who are under their charge or they're working alongside of are disloyal or their incompetency stands in the way of the goals being met. And then the anger feels justified because the most important value is the productivity, the success, or the approval. And then eighth, driven people often boast of their busyness. A lot of times driven people have just forgotten how to recreate, how to play. The spiritual life, seeking the Lord in private times of devotion and in prayer and reading the Bible, it seems like a waste of time. They might even complain about their busyness to others because they like the, self, the, the pity that it evokes from others, but they wouldn't have it any other way. Do any of these resonate? You don't need to nod, but internally in your heart. Doesn't mean that you're a bad person if so. But it means that if you're like me, you probably need to be reminded and recalibrated to what the truth is this morning. And the the life that God invites us into that is so much better than everything I just described. And that is the called life. If I was to define what a called person is or looks like, a called person is someone who hears the voice of God and lives in light of his definitions of your identity and your purpose and not your own definitions of your identity and your purpose. And to unpack this and extrapolate it, we're going to look at John the Baptist who gives us an amazing picture of what it looks like to live a called life. If you don't know who John the Baptist is, the brief bio is this. He is a cousin to Jesus, the Messiah of the world. Uh, He's probably about six months or so older than him because you may remember the scene, if you're familiar with your New Testament, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, going and visiting her cousin Elizabeth, uh, who was six months further along in her pregnancy than Mary was with John. So they're cousins. And uh, John becomes a prophet. This is his, he's called to be a prophet. He's really the last of the Old Testament style prophets. And his purpose is to prepare people's hearts, including his own, to usher in and to receive Jesus, the Messiah of the world. And we're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 25 to 30 this morning. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or use one of the blue ones, blue hardback ones in the pew in front of you, I don't know what page it's on. I'll give you a little extra moment to find that. John chapter 3, verses 25 to 30. And when you are ready, if you are able, I'd invite you to stand as we read God's word. Again, John chapter 3, verses 25 to 30, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. If we're to look at the life of John the Baptist, there are four ways in which we can see what a called life looks like. A called, uh, somebody, a person who's called understands four things, and I think they'll all be together at the same time on the screen behind me, so you get a bit of a preview of where we're going. And the first person that a called person that John understood is that he was merely a steward of all that he had been given. In verse 27, we're told by John, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So you have some people who approach John here, apparently some of his own disciples and a Jew, and it it seems like that Jew might be representative actually of somebody who's trying to stir up controversy, maybe even a religious leader, a Pharisee. And and so that's kind of the context and tone going, it seems, into this confrontation of John about some of his disciples leaving to go and be with Jesus. And so they're pointing out, hey, Jesus is attracting and baptizing some of your followers. How do you feel about that? It's kind of like a test for John. And the remarkable thing is that John is unfazed by this. In fact, he's delighted to hear this news. The opposite of what those who came to him and asked this question were likely expecting. Why? Why did John react this way? Because John knew that he was merely a steward. Everything that he has and had was from heaven. And he lived with that lens before him. Now, I want to note here that he doesn't qualify the types of things he has in view here. Uh, you know, you cannot receive even one thing unless it is given you from heaven. He doesn't qualify that. It could be and does include all things are ultimately from God. However, it's important, I think, to note in this context that it's particularly people who are in view and that John has in mind as he's responding in this way. The people that he was called to minister to, John understood, were never his to begin with. They were always God's. They always were and they always will be his, and they're ultimately in his hands. John knew this. He knew it well. There's a famous cardinal, uh, Cardinal Daniels of Brussels, um, who kind of talked about how this, he had that posture he cultivated over time, that all of God's people that he'd been given charge of were ultimately God's. And it just sounds so freeing to live this way. Here's what he said. He said, when I get home after a long day, I go to the chapel and pray. I say to the Lord, there it is for today. Things are finished. Now let's be serious. Is this diocese mine or yours? The Lord says, what do you think? I answer, I think it's yours. That is true, the Lord says. It is mine. And so I say, listen, Lord, it is your turn to take responsibility for and direct the diocese. I am going now to sleep. How amazing does that sound? That is the, the posture that the Lord is inviting us as called people to live into when we realize that we are merely stewards of all he has given us, and in particular, the people around us. So the question this begs from us this morning, if we're to start moving towards application of this first point, is who are those people for you to whom you are merely meant to view, to view as being a steward of? For it's likely that for the majority of us here, it isn't a large crowd or following like John the Baptist has. There's something incredibly relevant here to pastors like myself or Christian leaders when it comes to heeding and hearing what John is saying here. But it's really relevant to all of us because the principle here is being open-handed with the people in your life God has given you and put you in a position to influence, is it not? So parents with children can probably relate to how uh, there's ways in which you've been trying to instruct and disciple your kids, and it's someone else, an extended family member or friend or a stranger who comes along and says something with whom it finally registers with your child, right? And like anybody ever experienced that before? I was talking to a parent recently who said that that was their experience. Or maybe it's a, it's a friend that you had that you led to Christ And now they're actually going to some other church than your own because they've kind of better connected there. And 
In either of these scenarios or others, the temptation is to be jealous, is to be a little bit envious, is to be a little bit disappointed that it wasn't you who they heard from, you who they continue to kind of trust and follow in that journey. But why? Is that jealousy coming from a place of a desire for their good or is that coming from our own ego? Whose are those people ultimately that God has entrusted to us? Whose is the wisdom that he's given us that we possess or the gifts that we possess? So what if God chooses to work through somebody else to bring a harvest of change and righteousness and uh, goodness into the people's lives that we're in a position to influence? Can we be okay with that? We can be okay with that when we realize that our calling is to merely just steward and use the gifts God's given us with the opportunities we have, with the people he's put in our life. That's it. Just be faithful with the gifts you've been given and the people you've been entrusted with, remembering that in the bigger picture, it's not about you, it's not about me, but it's ultimately about Jesus being magnified no matter who God uses. John the Baptist got this. He understood he was merely called to be a steward with these people that God had entrusted him with. Second thing that a called person understands is what they are not. We're going to talk about identity in two parts here. Uh, Understanding what we are not and understanding what we are or who we are not and who we are. And the first thing that we see in John is he understood who he was not. In verse 28, here's what he says. You yourselves bear witness, uh, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew he was not the Messiah, but that he was a forerunner who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. Think about how easy it would be for someone in John's position to entertain suggestions that he was more than he was. He was charismatic. He was bold and brash. He was a man filled with deep conviction. He was polarizing. He was extremely popular with those who loved him. Man, it would have been so easy for him in those moments where people were undoubtedly asking and suggesting, are you the Messiah? For him to actually accept that opinion and to think that he was more important than he actually was. Maybe even that he was the Messiah, rather than just a pointer to the Messiah. In Christian circles, sometimes we'll use this language of uh, a savior complex that we want to be wary of, that isn't true of ourselves, that we're not taking on a burden that's more than we were intended to. This is when we feel this strong sense, a savior complex of, if I don't do this, then things are going to fall apart. Or who else is going to take care of these people if I don't? Obviously, there is appropriate responsibility that we need to take for the people and things that God has given us. But to be healthy, we must discern where it's gone beyond responsibility to trying to do what only Jesus can do and be for people. There is a burden that you were meant to carry, and there's a burden you were not meant to carry and that you could never carry. In serving Jesus, the Bible talks about how we wear a yoke. Um, If you're unfamiliar with what that is, agriculturally speaking, it's this wooden apparatus that's almost in a figure-eight type pattern that sits on the shoulders of two different oxen oxen who are pulling a plow. And Jesus is the one, actually, who introduces this metaphor for us. And remember who it is that is in the yoke with you that he invites you to wear. Here's what he says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me give you an illustration of a different kind to kind of draw out this idea of the yoke that you and I are in with Jesus. Um, there are times where my kids have seen me working on something, particularly uh, lifting heavy objects, especially when they were younger. This is true. I don't want to dissuade them from helping me out right now. So we'll say when they were younger, where there would be these heavy objects and they'd come up to me and be like, Daddy, can I help move that? And I would say, sure. Knowing this thing weighed twice as much as they actually weighed and not sure exactly how much help they could actually provide, I would... I would allow them to take one part of the load and more awkwardly than if I'd just done it myself, take the other part and lift 98% of this load while they're, they're giving their all to, to lift 2% of that load. 
This is the picture of what it's like for us to be in the yoke with Jesus. Now, I love that. I love doing that for for my children because they're living into their identity as those who are called to help bear the burdens of others and to serve others. But I'm in the yoke with them and I'm doing the lion's share of the heavy lifting. That's what it's like for us to be in the yoke with Jesus in our calling as his disciples. God calls us to faithfully point people to Jesus. He called John the Baptist to faithfully point people to Jesus. But we must remember in that process, number one, we are not alone in that. And number two, you are not Jesus. Only he can do the heavy lifting, even as you are faithful to do your 2%. Now, that shouldn't change our work ethic when we hear something like that or the effort that we put into following after Jesus. Simultaneously in Scripture, you see people like the Apostle Paul say, I worked harder than all the rest, referring to the other disciples. Or, I poured myself out like a drink offering in your service. And at the same time, Jesus says something like, apart from me, you can do nothing. Because even our greatest efforts can't move the mountains of people's hearts at the end of the day. The characteristic of John the Baptist and somebody who understands who they are not and yet still works hard at serving Jesus is somebody who has zeal with peace. However, sometimes we can get this wrong. And we can have the zeal and we can be working hard, but we can constantly be filled with angst and anxiety. Or we can have peace, but we just have this laissez-faire, hands-off, ah, why do I really need to do anything? God's going to take care of it attitude. And neither of those are a picture of the called person. Both are false and in need of recalibration. John was both zealous and a man of great inner peace and security so that when his disciples were walking away, he was rejoicing that they were going to the, the one that they really that he was pointing to all along. And he was able to do this because he knew who he was not. He was not Jesus. And there's a freedom that comes to us as Christians when we understand that our calling is to point people to Jesus and not to be Jesus for them. There's a a visual that's been so helpful to me in recent years. I don't always live it out well. But that is that my goal as a dad, as a husband, as a friend, as a pastor is ultimately to take someone's hand and to get it into Jesus' hand because at the end of the day, only he can serve their greatest needs. And it's the posture that John the Baptist took on and that all of us need to live with. Ultimately get the people we love and care about their hand into Jesus' hand. Point them to Jesus. Only he's the one who can truly heal and give them what they need and what we need. So a called person understands who they are not. And part two of that identity is John Baptist understood who he was. Verse 29, John likens himself to a best man at a wedding. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's talking about Jesus. He's the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, John's talking about himself now, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now, I've had the privilege of being a best man um, for one of my best friends in the world. And I'll tell you, it was a privilege and it was an honor because of how much you love that person and that they would ask you to stand by their side on that occasion to support them on one of the most important occasions of their life. And there's a couple of implications when you're a best man. Number one implication is that person who's asked you to be your best man deeply values your friendship. They want you to be there standing by their side on that day. And that's just a, a privilege and an honor and brings joy to your heart when you know the important part you have to play in this person's life, how much they value you. But it also has an implication of purpose, the role of a best man, even in how John unpacked it here and what his role was. And that's simply to stand by in support and make sure that all the attention is riveted ultimately upon the groom. Now, we would say on the bride. But for this metaphor, we'll say on the groom, on Jesus, the bride and the groom together. Now, I'm sure it's happened Tragically, if if so, and cringeworthily, if so. But just imagine for a moment if during the beginning of the ceremony, as the bride is walking down the aisle and, you know, 
she kisses her father. She's got that privilege of having her father walk her down the aisle. And he is about to, to pass her off to the husband, the groom, the husband-to-be. And the best man jumps in the way and gives her a big hug and starts getting all weepy and saying, oh, I'm so happy for you today. No, right? Like, no, it just makes you feel awkward. Or what if instead, right at that moment, they're about to join hands? Instead of waiting till the reception... The, the, the best man all of a sudden starts, hey, but let me tell you really quick about how, how I actually introduced these two. It's a really funny story and starts taking the limelight onto themselves. No, right? That's not the role of a best man. The role of a best man is to get out of the way and make sure that everybody else gets out of the way so that the reason why we're there that day to celebrate that groom and that bride can happen. John knew that. He understood that. The implication of both being valued as a friend and that his role was ultimately to put the limelight on Jesus as the best man. So to see the crowd for John not following him anymore but moving on to Jesus wasn't a shot at his pride. It was a joyous sense of satisfaction that people were rightly going to the only one who's deserving of glory and honor. Because John knew who he was. He was a friend of the groom and a pointer to him. And by the way, that's not just John because he's so special because he was called to be a prophet. Jesus says to his disciples and by extension to all of us who are his followers in John 15, 14 to 15, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you, I have called you friends for I've, I have, uh, for all that I've heard from my father, I've now made known to you. Man, that's one of the gospel good news truths you get to cling to, that the God of the universe in the form of Jesus Christ calls you friend if you are a Christian here today. What a blessing to live out of that. You can live as a called person when you understand that is how God views you. Finally and fourthly, a called person understands when things need to be released and when they ultimately need to step out of the way. Verses 29 to 30, John says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. There are lots of different stations and seasons in life where we will come into contact with this need to kind of back away and to release, whether that it's as mothers and fathers who eventually know they need to release their children whether it's as mentors who know that they eventually need to just entrust those that they've discipled to go and do what God's called them to do, whether it's business owners, let's say, especially of family businesses who know they must eventually hand over that business uh, to someone else and, and probably even a child, whether it's leaders of organizations or churches that know that they must hand off the baton to younger leaders who may appear not to be ready In a terror context, maybe it's tribe leaders who know they must eventually release other growing and maturing members of their tribes to lead new tribes, which are small groups here at Terra Nova. Um, If anybody was here at the, uh, or here, not here, but at the men's retreat last year, uh, David Pinckney, who was our guest speaker, spoke about these four different stages of manhood uh, as a cowboy, a warrior, uh, a king, and a sage. And what I'm really talking about are those last two kind of graduating from this kingly role of overseeing and managing something to stepping back as a sage and allowing those that are, have been entrusted to us to kind of step in and, and take that baton. Some of you may remember that, and it may have been impactful to you from last year. So a called person, secure in their identity, purpose, and understanding of their role as a steward, knows that there is a day coming when they're going to need to pass things off. They, may, they, they must decrease so that others can increase. You must decrease so that others can increase. Ultimately, we must decrease every day, find ways to decrease so that Jesus can be glorified and magnified in our lives. And John was okay with that. He wasn't threatened by that because he remembered that his whole purpose was ultimately so that Jesus could increase in his midst. It's never ultimately about us. It's always ultimately about him. So how do you get to be this way? As we kind of move toward a close, I want to share with you three things we see from this text that we can learn uh, as factors that formed and shaped John to be able to live as a called person rather than like Saul as a driven person. And the first is this. 
He had godly influences in his life. If you haven't, go back and read from early on in the Gospels the stories surrounding, I think, I think Luke is the one that kind of most draws out uh, Zechariah um, and Elizabeth's role in John's life. Elizabeth, again, his mom, was the one who, when Mary came to her, was the first we have recorded in the scriptures to exclaim um, Jesus as her Lord, as she was filled with the Holy Spirit and recognized that that was who was in Mary's belly. And she proclaimed, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the mother of John the Baptist who had paved the way, knew from the get-go, from the start, this is Jesus, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the world, and no doubt instilled and passed that along to her son. Zechariah, after John is born, prophesies John's role as one who would be a forerunner, paving the way for Jesus to come into the world. And no doubt, he would have instilled that sense of calling in John from a young age. Not everyone in here has had that luxury of having parents, maybe no fault of their own even, but just didn't know Jesus or weren't very godly, and so didn't influence you in that regard. And so the question for us all this morning isn't, did we have the same privilege as John the Baptist did as an influential factor in our calling, but who are we now surrounding ourselves with as influences who can remind us of our identity in Christ and what he has called us to? Who are those people in your life? Are you being intentional in that regard to to recognize this is the person who I want to be around because I know I'm going to be shaped for good and reminded of who I truly am in those places I'm tempted to, to not believe that. I think that's the takeaway for us from that first influential factor in John's life of godly influences. Who are those people for you? Secondly, we see that he learned to listen in the desert. Both those things, listening and desert, are important here. Uh, I think that there's principles that can be extrapolated from his literal experience of spending much of his life in the desert. We're told in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, about John, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Scholars will actually say that it seems as if Elizabeth and Zechariah disappeared off the scene of John's life fairly early, and so John then moves into the wilderness to continue his shaping as a, as a follower of Yahweh. And then just before his ministry began in Luke 3, Chapter 3, verse 2, we're told this. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John's relationship with God was forged in the desert. All right, deserts represent places of quiet in comparison to places like cities and suburbs where life is often hurried and busy and filled with noise. And oftentimes there's greater temptation to measure up to those who are immediately around you. All of that can make it harder to hear God's voice. And so the principle here is what are those desert-like places? The eramos places in the Greek is the word for where Jesus retreated to regularly to pray, where we can have peace and quiet to be able to hear God's voice. But just as importantly to recognize about what the desert might have done for John that we need to, is deserts were harsh environments that would have prepared John to accept a difficult calling uh, and to be obedient even when it was uncomfortable for him. Gordon MacDonald, author that I referenced earlier, said this, Deserts are hard places in which to live, physically or spiritually, but the fact is unavoidable. The greatest lessons are potentially learned in deserts if one, in the midst of struggle, listens for God's call. No doubt that had a shaping influence for John. Desert wasn't just all peace. There was struggle to survive. There's very little water, very little food, hot, arid, dry. You don't necessarily, like it seems John was, with, without the company of other people around, have that to kind of uh, mitigate the difficulties of providing. He was on his own there and learning to hear and heed the call of God in his life in the midst of that struggle. It's oftentimes a difficult thing for us as Christians. We'll wait to those easy seasons of life to then tune into what God has to say when maybe he wants to speak the loudest to us in the difficult seasons of life, but we just don't pause to pray and listen. I think a valid question for us to ask of ourselves is, are we too comfortable to be able to hear God's voice and God's call? In Romans 13, 14, the Apostle Paul says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh to gratify its desires. Because when we make provision for the flesh, when we put ourselves in position uh, that makes it easier for our flesh, the fleshly desires, sinful desires, 
to be satiated, oftentimes what that does is it sears our consciences, it tunes, it, it dulls our hearing to be able to hear from God. And Paul also says then in Galatians five sixteen to 17, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Being too comfortable can keep us from living the called life, from hearing God's voice, and from trusting the identity and purpose that he has declared over you. Being too comfortable will often make believing those things too difficult for us. There may be a place for you and I to consider what it looks like for us to be more intentional about listening in the desert. Comforts that you may need to give up, obedience that you may need to take on, uh, that make you uncomfortable, that will actually reform your underlying motivations and desires to move you from being a driven person to a called person. Listening, learning to listen in the desert was a key aspect of John's pilgrim journey being formed into a called person. And then thirdly, John had a deep belief in the supremacy and the salvation of Jesus. In John three thirty one, he continues in the same passage a little later on than we looked at earlier. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he, Jesus, who comes from heaven is above all. This is the supremacy piece. He got it. Jesus is worthy of all praise. And then he goes on to say in John three thirty-five to 36, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son, of course, this would have been true of John. He did, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John lived a life in light of Jesus's supremacy. He was truly above all in John's eyes, in his worthiness, in his power, in his beauty, in his love. And John also lived in the light of the salvation that Jesus provided for him. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I was talking to a friend earlier this week who was sharing an epiphany that they had with me about uh, this passage of Scripture where the 72 disciples Jesus had sent out on mission two by two came back and they were just rejoicing and praising God because they saw that the demons like were, were cowering in their presence, that they actually had authority over the demons. And Jesus says to recalibrate their focus in that moment on what ultimately would help them to continue as a called person and not a driven person is this. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. How much better is that than any amount of earthly success or popularity or productivity? John understood the incredible, undeserved gift that salvation was. This is why he was able to say later that he wasn't even worthy to untie the straps of the sandals on Jesus' feet which was the job of a lowly servant. And he wasn't even worthy of that. He understood the greatness of Jesus and his own lack thereof, his own unholiness, his own sin. The apostle Paul, another man who lived as called, put it this way, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, but the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. When we remember that which we have been saved from, when we remember the grace of God which has been extended to us daily, and then we remember what he gave up in order to secure you and I as sons and daughters of his, we don't have to look anywhere outside of the cross of Jesus Christ for our identity and our purpose, for our calling. If we're going to become called people then, Rather than driven people, it has to start with belief in the Son who has mercifully granted to you and to I eternal life. If we are living as driven people, on the other hand, then ultimately we're still seeking salvation in something or someone else other than Jesus. But today he's inviting you and I to look to him alone 
for the identity and the purpose he's given you that will allow you to live in the freedom of a called life rather than a driven one. Let's pray to that end that he would help us in that. Father, we thank you for your word and how it's constantly a pointer to us and a light to the dark places in our heart that exposes our truest needs. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who need to receive the Son in order to receive eternal life, who need salvation, who are in bondage to their own driven nature to receive the very things that you have already secured for them in your son Jesus Christ on the cross through their own means, seeking productivity and power and popularity. Oh Lord, open their eyes to see how you provide that so much better and that ultimately there's just a pathway of destruction that that leads to, like Saul. And then there are just some of us, Father, who by your grace alone we thank you have been made sons and daughters, but have forgotten the identity and purpose that you have given us that frees us to live a life that doesn't need the approval of others, that doesn't need success or popularity to define our sense of worth or value. Oh man, we just need to be reminded this morning that you've secured all of that for us through your son, Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in each heart here this morning in the way that each of us need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And let us be like John, who didn't reluctantly allow his disciples to walk away and to fall into the shadow of Jesus, but, man, he rejoiced in that because he saw Jesus for all of his beauty, all of his majesty and glory. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see him the same. We pray these things in Christ's name for his glory and our joy. Amen.